And uh, thank you, Damien, for leading us in that time of prayer and our worship team as well and leading us in God-glorifying worship. If you have your Bible with you, please grab it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, where we are going to be continuing on in our Sermon on the Mount series and closing our little sort of two-part mini-series that uh, Stephen began last week, talking about the subject of prayer. And right now, at this particular time, uh, with what's going on, I can't think of a better text, actually, that applies to us right now and gives us encouragement than this. Let's, let's read together, brothers and sisters, first. Jesus speaking. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? You know, there are few subjects, I think, in Christian doctrine that are as dear to me as the subject of prayer. You know, perhaps some of you are tuning into this for the very first time, and maybe you come from either an atheistic background or you come from a background that is religious, and maybe you were required actually to perform a set of prayers according to a particular schedule. According to God's Word, there is a big difference in Christianity when it comes to talking about prayer. Prayer is not about connecting with yourself or hoping to placate some sort of deity that's out there or fulfilling your obligations that need to be done a certain number of times a day. Prayer is intimate. It's relational. Prayer reaches into the very depths of your soul as you communicate with God himself. Prayer is us who are little insignificant bits of dust whose lives appear for a little time like a little mist and then vanish, communicating with an all-wise, almighty, all-powerful God. It's about us speaking to the God who has the heavenly storehouses that are filled with hail and snow and sends them down to blanket our world, just like it did yesterday and it continues to do today. Prayer is about us communicating with our only wise God, who alone is immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen and whom no one can ever see. Prayer is about us coming before the King of all the universe, who has made all things, and speaking to him. I love what the psalmist you know, said in Psalm chapter 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the sun and moon that you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. And there are so many things that the Bible has to say about the magnificence and the greatness of God. And we who are children of the living God, have the privilege through prayer of walking straight into the throne room of our King and having an audience with Him and speaking to Him. You know, we uh, walk through this world, Christians and non-Christians, and we enjoy the things that God has provided for us to eat, the things that we use to clothe ourselves, the beauty of nature that just encourages us as we go out for a walk in a park. All these things are amazing things to see the gifts of God. But prayer is far more spectacular because prayer isn't just about the gifts of God. Prayer is about God himself. And we as people being able to look at the face of our Father and talk to him. 
Prayer is about going into the throne room of God and seeing the sovereign king of all the universe surrounded by his ten thousands upon ten thousands of mighty flaming angels and being able to say, you are my father, please hear my plea right now. And the father who loves his children, who is running the entire world, always has time to hear his children's cries and his prayers. The the immensity of the access that we have before God should not be underestimated by us as Christians. See, when your knees are on the floor, kneeling before the king of all the universe, our souls are actually being drawn up into the heavenlies where God is. All this because we are royal children of the king, purchased by his precious blood. I mean, how great is that, Christians? I think we often don't think about how amazing it is for us to be able to have the opportunity to talk to God at any time of the day and to know that he'll never be turn us away from him. Right? He tells us, cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Now, when we think about the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount here and Jesus' instructions were not addressed to self-sufficient North Americans who, felt like, who feel like they don't need anything from God whatsoever. You know, many of Jesus' original followers lived day to day, and thus when Jesus told them to pray to God for their daily needs, they understood exactly what he was talking about because they needed God's help to survive each and every day. You know, in the disciples' prayer earlier, or the Lord's Prayer, as it's commonly known by, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. As he taught them, he taught them to begin like this, begin with acknowledging who God is. Holy is your name. And then afterwards, he taught them to align their hearts with God, who was saying, not my will, God, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He taught them to bring his, their requests before God. That is, to bring their prayers for daily bread before God and also to ask him for daily forgiveness of their sins. And also, not only that, to make sure that in the road that they were walking on through life, this difficult pilgrim way, that they would not be left alone or to die as they wandered away into temptation and evil, but that God would guard them from these very things. I mean, this is what Jesus did. His disciples wanted and needed to know how to pray, and so he taught them how to pray. What's interesting here is after teaching his disciples about how to pray and then what to pray for and not to worry, here Jesus continues on his instructions about prayer, teaching about the attitude and expectation that brothers and sisters who are his followers will be should have when they pray. Let's go back to looking through our text here, verses 7 and 8, to see what Jesus has to say. The text says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. You know, in these verses, Jesus has three commands, three imperatives that are clear for all of us to say. Ask, Seek and knock. And to that he says, do that and you will see results. Now, the question that we need to ask as we're reading this is, what exactly does he mean by these three things? Ask, seek, and knock. Are they simple synonyms for the same thing? Or is there something more that's there? Now, let's look at number one, ask, okay? Ask what? Now, I think it's fairly clear in the context of the Sermon on the Mount that God is the implied, you know, subject of this. In other words, it's ask God. And when we're talking about ask God, what we mean here is ask God in prayer. Bring requests before Him. And as you bring your requests before Him, 
you should pray expecting to receive from this God. And the promise that Jesus says is just ask, and you will receive. Now, this isn't the first time and the only time that Jesus makes this kind of uh, promise here. If you look, for example, at John chapter 14 to 17, Jesus says a number of times in here about how his believers should pray. For example, John 14 verse 13 says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 15.7, it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 15.16, again, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, now, question for us here. Does this mean that if I simply pray with faith long and hard enough that God will give me a private jet if I'm asking for it? I think the answer to that is no. I don't think this means that just go out and ask for whatever you want, unqualified, and you'll simply get it. As if God is a genie who's obligated by your prayers to give you and say, yes, master, here you go. No. I think all these verses actually have qualifications built into them. For example, in 14 verse 13, ask in my name. 15 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. It's a qualification. 15 16, I appointed you to do what? To bear fruit. And in the context of that, go out and ask. See, the ask anything is set in the context of relationship with Jesus following Jesus' words, serving Jesus' purposes, and glorifying Jesus and God. And that's actually implicit in this. And I think we speak this way actually in everyday life as well. And in, in, when it comes to human relationships, we actually understand how this works. For example, today just happens to be Valentine's Day. And I know there will be a number of husbands who will go to their wives today and say, Sweetheart, what would you like for me to do for you tonight? Just ask me for anything. And it's yours. Now, a wife who loves her husband will understand exactly what he means by that. She could say to him, so sweet of you, I would love a nice sushi dinner tonight for Valentine's Day. Only in Vancouver. This is what people want, you know. And so she'll say, please, could you go out and get us something from my favorite sushi restaurant? Of course, dear. Or she might say something, I love the snow that's just coming down right now. I would love to go for a walk in Stanley Park tonight. Could we do so? You know. You know, what she wouldn't say is, Wait, did I hear you right? Did you, did you say anything? I'm going to hold you to that. You said anything, right? Uh, well, tonight, could you help me rob a bank instead? Because I need some money. Or would she say something like, would you just fill the freezer with ready-to-go meals so that for the next week I can just sit at home throughout this lockdown and watch Netflix and just don't bother me. I think a wife who really loves her husband would never say something like that. Do you know what the problem is with requests like that? The problem with that is that they dishonor the husband and they treat him as a prop and a tool that is nothing more than to serve her own desires, her own pleasures, to the exclusion of anything that he might enjoy in their relationship. See, anybody who is in a committed relationship understands that when that significant other of yours looks at you in the eyes 
and says to ask me for anything, you know that it carries an implicit qualification in the context of relationship. And that anything does not include things that will bring harm to either individual, but actually will include things that give them both mutual pleasure. That's just understood when you love each other. I think the same qualification needs to be understood implicitly here in prayer. Jesus' commands to ask for anything is set in the context of seeking God's kingdom first and his righteousness, and also in the context of a relationship with him. See, and if you know and love Jesus, and you know his heart, you will ask for things that bring both you and your Lord mutual joy, and you will not ask for things that solely are in line with your own pleasures and might actually bring harm to his name. See, and if we're asking for things like that, sinful desires, desires that are not in accordance with kingdom principles first, there's no expectation we have that God should answer those prayers. I mean, James chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, makes this actually very explicit. James says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, those are very, very strong words. You ask wrongly, selfishly to spend it on your own passions. You're asking to be a a friend of the world and to be an enemy of God himself. But the flip side to that is, if you're asking according to the Father's will and you know him, you can expect an answer. You know, I pray every Sunday and throughout the week, that God will always open people's hearts to hear his word, that people would get saved, they would hear the words of eternal life, and it would stir in them just something, and they would say, wow, I've never heard anything like this. And they would come to faith and be baptized here at this church. I remember just last year in the midst of this pandemic, I'd say, God, I have no idea what you're doing through this, but we don't have church as we normally know it, but still, Lord, would you bring people to know you? And we saw a number of people get baptized in this church I remember in the fall, just praying, God, after we had seen a few baptisms, Lord, would you just send one more, please, just one more, one more that I would have the privilege of seeing come to know Jesus and I would baptize in this church. And as many of you know, we baptized Yazdan just before Christmas. To see him come to faith was such a joy and encouragement to my own soul and my own heart. Some of you actually wrote to me afterwards. You told me you had tears in your eyes as you watched him being baptized and saw another one joining our church family. Oh, the angels in heaven rejoice, the Bible tells us, when a soul turns from his sin and comes to God. There's much rejoicing in heaven. See, prayers like that, we know God will answer as we seek him and we pray and we ask for our God to do things that are about his kingdom's work. Father delights to answer prayers like that. So he commands us, ask, ask, ask. Now, let's look at number two here, the second imperative, seek, okay? Seek, I think, is more intensive at this point, and it carries a sense here that we, as believers, are not just to ask by speaking, but we are also to be about Christian activity, to seek. The language actually echoes the call in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where it says, seek first the kingdom of God. 
Now, this is really important as it frames for us what this seeking is about here. This is not a guarantee of like generic seeking. Like you go out on Craigslist, for example, and you say, I'm going to be seeking after a particular thing and I'm going to be praying about it. God, you better find a Tesla for me, which is $10,000 cheaper, whatever, and provide it for me because I'm going out. I'm seeking now. I want this thing. God, you better give it to me. That is not what it's about. Now, I think once again, we're talking about what accords with his will and his kingdom purposes. Like, for example, in Acts chapter 16, you read about Paul going out to seek, to do work, as he's looking for people to preach to. And you find out he has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come on over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul sees that vision, we're told that immediately he sought to go there because he knew that that God was calling them to go there and bring the gospel to the Macedonian region. And so Acts chapter 16, verse 11 to 14 reads like this. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, I love this because we know that the Apostle Paul, if anyone was, was a man of prayer. He talks all the time about how he prays night and day for his people. If anyone was saturated in prayer, it was Paul. Now, Paul regularly in the epistles prays for opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here we realize that Paul doesn't just pray for things. but actually that he seeks and he pursues activity. In other words, his prayers actually drive him to action, to pursue God's will. Now, in the text here that we noted, we see actually about how diligent Paul is as he pursues. The text tells us that he traveled. It tells us that he sailed. It tells us he spent a number of days looking around the city. He wasn't exactly sure where to go once he got there because the vision wasn't that specific. So the text tells us he spends days actually there in the city. He uses his mind Supposing afterwards the text says that there's a place of prayer, expecting there that there might be religious people who might want to dialogue and to talk, he goes there and he finds Lydia amongst other people. And the text tells us that Lydia, God opens Lydia's heart and he rewards Paul's faithfulness, his pursuit of action. And Lydia gets baptized and invites him to stay in her home. You see, What this shows us here is that Jesus' second imperative, that is to seek, connects actually a heart, I think, that is saturated with prayer with Christian activity. In other words, we go out and we do in an atmosphere saturated sort of in prayer. There is no such thing as Christian prayer that does not drive us to activity. You know, the great Baptist preacher John Broadus once said this, One may be a truly industrious man and yet poor in temporal things. But one cannot be a truly praying man and yet poor in spiritual things. Now, in other words, you can work really hard and still be poor in the world. That's what John Broadus is saying. But a person who prays really hard will never actually be spiritually poor. See, you can't keep praying for people or things without actually being driven to do something for them. Earnest prayer actually leads to earnest action for people. Love will drive you to activity, and you always pray for what you love. Okay, one more thing here. Let's look at this. Number three, knock. 
Here, I think Jesus is getting more intense. In other words, what he's imagining here is that his followers would actually be in situations that feel like closed doors as they go about living for him and doing his ministry. And the door will never open unless someone opens it for you. You know, Paul actually uses this analogy of a door very frequently in his letters when he says, for example, in Colossians 4, 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the ministry of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now, this is amazing, right? Because Paul is actually in prison for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the only thing he wants is for God actually to open a door for him to continue preaching the gospel elsewhere. And he might even get arrested again, but he doesn't care. That's his heart's desire. He wants to preach. And he wants open doors. You see the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 to 9, where Paul says this, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. See, again, it's about open opportunities for him to be able to spread the gospel. So I think what Jesus is speaking about here generally is that sometimes you're going to face impossible situations as my disciple. Closed doors in your life. And it's going to feel like you have the impassable Red Sea on one side and you have Pharaoh's army on the other side. Swimming is not an option and fighting against them is also not an option. You will die either way. But in those particular situations, what God is saying to you, believers, is I want you to pray. I want you to pursue me and I want you to persevere. Stand firm in me. Don't give up and I will open the door. And if you are a Christian here who has lived a life of faithfulness, you can attest how God has done this as you have persevered in prayer. I say the same thing occurs in my own life on a regular basis. You know, many of you know that, for example, preaching is actually a huge struggle for me. I pray all the time throughout the week, and especially as I get closer to Sunday, please, God, give me something to say. Give me a sermon to preach. But my prayers aren't coupled with inactivity. I don't just say pray. I don't just say, well, I've prayed. All right, God, I'm going to get up here on Sunday and I'm going to say the first thing that comes to the top of my head and hope that it turns off for the better. No, my prayer is coupled with Christian activity. And the way that I seek and the way that I pursue this second thing is that I open my Bible, I open my books, and I write, I rewrite, I rip up things, and I go, that's terrible, that doesn't make sense. And until I get something, I go, yes, yes, it seems to make sense. Let me write like this. I agonize over that late onto Saturday night. It's just my pattern and my habit. By 9 o'clock, I usually have something that looks quite like gobbledygook. You can ask Amin and Sapita, who are translating this right now, and they get my first draft, and it really doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's only after hacking away at it for four or five hours afterwards, sometimes till 2 or 3 a.m. Or, or later, and I go, yes, God. And I get on my knees, and I pray, and I say, please, I have nothing again to say to your people. Would you just help me here right now? Give me something to be able to say. Because if I get up there tomorrow morning, I'll have nothing to speak to your people to encourage them with. And God has never failed me. It's five years that I have served preaching week in and week out, whether for Acts 2, for 2 out west and everywhere I've gone. The Lord has always come through for me. He has never let me down. You know, prayer is to undergird everything that we say and that we do. Pray, pursue, and persevere. 
for those of you who are outlining, I mean, that's what you can put down. God's love calls us to do this. That's, I think, what Jesus means by asking, seeking, and knocking. Pray, pursue, and persevere. You know, I love the story that I think it's told by, about, I read about Luther's insight on prayer as he was looking at his dog one time. You know, Luther had a puppy or something like that that he happened to see at his table. And this little puppy was looking for just a little thing to eat from his master. And as Luther was pondering this puppy, looking at its motionless gaze, its eyes, and its wide open mouth, he struck him and gave him an insight into the nature of prayer. And he wrote after this, Oh, if only I could pray the way that this dog watches the meat. All his thoughts are concentrated on the piece of meat. Otherwise, he has no thought, wish, or hope. Isn't that a picture of what we're to be, brothers and sisters, as we pray? Unrelenting prayer and focus and perseverance, singularly on the object of which we are calling out to God for. Like the puppy, pray like the puppy that looks at a little morsel and says, I won't leave until I get it. Poppy prayer. That's how God wants us to pray. That's how he commands us to pray. Now, question, okay. I know from this, Jesus calls me to do this, to seek and uh, to ask and to uh, knock on these doors. And I, I know he says that he'll come through on his promise, but, but how do I know? How do I just, I'm just struggling right now. How do I have an assurance in my heart and he is actually going to do this for me. How do I know he'll answer me? Look at verses 9 to 11. Jesus speaking here says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, Bread and fish are examples of staples in Jesus' time, much in the way that we would say rice, maybe, and noodles or bread, you know, are staples today. Jesus is taking an example from ordinary, everyday life and says, look, what parent amongst you, if their child was crying to you in hunger, would trick his child and say, oh, you want the bread, but you got a rock, ha, 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 you know, you bit into that, are your teeth okay? You would never do that as a parent. You never do that because you love your kids. They're precious to you, and you will do anything you can to fight for and seek their good. For those of you who are parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Your kid gets injured halfway around the world or whatever. You're on a plane, and you're flying to get them. You spare no expense. Your child needs your help because they left their keys at home after they arrived at their college dorm four hours away. Guess who's driving afterwards to bring them their laptop or the things that they thought they forgot? Parents go to great lengths to serve their children. Even though it's exhausting at times, you do it because you love them. Remember, I remember the first time that I became, when I became a parent and I walked out of the hospital carrying my son in a baby car seat. It was the weirdest thing. I remember thinking to myself, is this for real? I mean, I came into this hospital with my wife, two people, and now we're leaving as three And I am toting out of this hospital right now a living, breathing human being. Well, well, actually, it's a snoring, tiny human being, you know, at the time. He's completely unconscious, right? You know, just sleeping away while we're carrying him out. And I remember looking around at nurses who are waving, they're like, bye, you know, and so on. I said, do I need to sign something for this? You know, like, can I just take this? I'm carrying a human being out of this hospital and nobody is stopping me. Do you realize what 
what, what I have right now? I mean, I remember looking at him and his little mouth with a little soother in there and just suck, 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 suck. And I thought to myself, this child would die if he had the wrong thing to eat right now. Whatever I put into his mouth, he's just going to suck and ingest. He's completely helpless and dependent. I can't believe I'm being entrusted with this right now. It's an immense privilege, actually, to have a child and to be a father. Now, now babies, of course, don't know any better. They just cry. You give them milk afterwards. They're happy. They go back to sleeping afterwards. But as these children grow up, what happens is that they learn, actually, how to think. And they start to think, actually, they know better than you at times. And they quickly learn how to reject what you say is good and to embrace the bad that they think is great. You know, as a wise parent, you need to be discerning about this. Because if your child was left to their own devices and you offered them and said, would you rather have carrots and broccoli and peas for lunch and dinner later today? It's yummy, yummy. It's good for you. Or would you rather have this bowl full of candy? Most children will say, I will take the candy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And they will eat it every single day. And if you allowed them to do that and gave them exactly what they wanted, they would end up with scurvy or some other strange malnutrition, and they would probably die afterwards. See, you in your infinitely greater wisdom know that just because your child wants something from you and demands it and cries and kicks a fuss and throws a tantrum, that it is not in your best interest or theirs actually to always give it to them. They think they know what they need because they've been in the world for a couple of years and it's clean and it's plain to them that, of course, I should be able to do this. But they're wrong. And the truth of the matter is that our Bible tells us that our Heavenly Father knows actually our needs best, and to Him we are just children. And if you're not getting actually some of the things that you're crying to God for, it's quite possible that it's because God's love is actually what is keeping it from you. He's not out to get you. He's out there to help you. God is not like the false gods in other religions or faiths who are capricious and play tricks on people. You know, there's a story told in Greek mythology about the Greek goddess named Eos, who was the goddess of the dawn. And she falls in love with this mortal man named Tithonus. And as a result, she goes to Zeus, the father of the gods, and basically says, would you make him an immortal? And tricky Zeus says, uh, of course I will. You know, I'll make, I'll make him immortal. And Zeus grants her his wish and makes her lover immortal, and she's happy until she realizes that Zeus sneakily neglected to give him one thing, and that was eternal youth as well. And as he continues to live, he gets older and older and older until the point he cannot even move and lies there on the floor just babbling. And so the gift that she received turned into a curse, right? Gotcha there, right? That's just the nature of the Greek gods, right? They play jokes on this, on human beings. It's terrible, right? You know, Jesus is telling us here that our God is not like that. He's not a prankster or a trickster looking to offer you a nice-looking thing that looks kind of like it's going to be good, looks like a nice egg or looks like a piece of bread, but it's actually a stone that's going to hurt you. Our God is not like that. He is a Father. We would never do that to our children, and God will never do that to us. See, the truth of the matter is, God will always give you what you need. God will answer His prayers, the prayers that we pray to Him in His way, And the question for us is whether we can be content to accept that his way is actually the best for us. There's another Greek myth that's actually told about a famous king named Midas. 
and you know, Midas, you know, has the favor of a god, and they ask, and the god says, I'm going to grant you anything that you want, and Midas, who loves money and, and gold coins, says, I want the ability for anything that I touch to turn into gold. And the god looks at him and says, like, are you sure you actually want that? Because that's not a good idea. And Midas says, no, that's absolutely what I want. And he gets it. And so he starts turning things into gold, touching tables and other stuff, and he's ecstatic. But then he soon realizes that uh, he can't even eat food because it touches his teeth and his food turns into gold. And the worst part happens is when his daughter comes out to hug him and he touches his daughter and she turns into a gold statue. And in that moment, he realizes the thing that he wanted the most actually was the thing that's killing him right now. See, it seems silly for us when we look at this and we say, how could that happen? And the point is, Midas was blinded by his greed in the story, and he couldn't foresee that he would actually regret his wish. Now, we look at a story and we say, that's quite silly. I would never be like that. But really, is that actually true? Are we not blinded sometimes by our own greed or by things that we're obsessed with? That other people look at us and say, you might not want to go down that road. Don't pursue that relationship. That job sounds really sketchy, but because we want it so bad, we throw caution to the wind and we chase after it. I know that many people, for example, in our world, think that money is great. And how could you go wrong if people gave you money? You know, it's a great thing. If someone offered you, you know, money, should you turn it down? I read an interesting story this week, actually, about um, an individual named Amy McCauley who with her husband was living paycheck to paycheck. And then one day, she came home a multimillionaire when she won the $15 million New York State Lotto. Now, initially, she was jubilant in 1991, but like 15 years later, she actually gave an interview on Oprah saying that she actually regretted she ever won the lottery. And Oprah said, well, what do you mean by that? And Amy went on to explain that she actually didn't know how to handle that kind of money. She said she spent it on all sorts of things, and it resulted actually in friends and family members coming to ask her for money, and she gave a bunch and stuff, but it eventually led to ruptured relationships and really bad ruptures, she said, to the point where she ended up losing all of her friends basically in New York over this. Two of her family members would no longer speak to her anymore, and she actually had to leave New York just to get away from the problems of her relationships, and she now lives, she lives, somewhere, she lives somewhere else far away from all her friends. Amy said this. She said that she wished she was just the poor old Amy in New York where people didn't look at her with dollar signs in their eyes. Could you ever have imagined that? You know, many of us think, God, if only I had a better job, if only I had a little bit more money, if only I was in this relationship, of course life would go fine for me. Do you actually know? Do you actually know that is really what you need? And if that's really what you needed, do you not think that your heavenly father who loves you as his child would not have already given you? See, brothers and sisters, do you realize that God actually knows better than you do? And if you can't get it, can you believe that it's actually divine love that withholds it from you and that God's interest is in not giving it to you because he knows you better than you know yourself and he knows that it will destroy you and he only wants to give you things which are good for you? I put this in your outline for those of you who outline two things that go hand in hand. One, God's love withholds from us harmful things that we want. And number three, God's love grants to us healthful things that we need. See, prayer is not hopeless, brothers and sisters. Sometimes God answers with a no because he doesn't want us to get hurt. And other times he answers, to, answers us with saying, you need to wait on this. And he grows us in Christian character as we pursue him, as we persevere, much like Jacob wrestling with the angel. At the end of the day, he prevailed as God said yes and gave him 
his blessing that he sought after, but he also gave Jacob a limp so that he would always be re-reminded as he limped along in life that he would be dependent forever on God. God's mercy is what got him to where he was and God's mercy is what would carry him to the very end of his days. And oftentimes it's like this for us as believers. Many times us taking the high road, doing what is right in God's eyes, leads to suffering on our behalf. But as the Bible says, it is far better for us to suffer for doing good than to do evil and to suffer for it. And so as we suffer, as our bodies and our frames are crippled on the way to our suffering, and we develop limps as we go as Christians, the beauty of it is that we develop perseverance and a Christ-like character as well. As we walk through this life, we come to know God as a provider, an intimate Father who always answers us when we call. You know, the difference between a baby Christian and a mature Christian is not that God answers the prayers of one and God doesn't answer the prayers of the other. No, no, no. God answers both, the little ones and the big ones. The difference is that the mature Christian has seen a thousand battles and says with rock-solid confidence in their voice, God will not fail me again for this one thousand and one time. Whereas the young panic. You know, Jesus reminds us here that God gives good gifts to his children. Now, let me say one other thing about something that Jesus mentions here. Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask from him, who are his children? It's interesting because he calls us evil. Now, I don't think he means by this that we are all psychopaths who are going out there and will murder people. He's not saying that all of us are as evil as can be. But what he's saying is that I think there's sin, actually, that lives in all of us. And then in comparison to a perfect God whose eyes are too pure to look on evil, who is uh, far above what we could ever imagine, and whose very presence is lethal to us because of the sin in our lives, our selfishness, and our desire to do things our own way and not God's way. Jesus is saying, compared to that standard of goodness, you're evil. And it's true. You know, Jesus is saying here that an argument from lesser to greater, basically, if you who are evil know how to shower such generosity in your children, do you not think that your father knows how to do that even better? In other words, God doesn't just give us what we need or the bare minimum. We go to a God who is actually a very generous God, who showers on his children, not just the basic staples of what they need, the bare minimum of clothes to wear so that they're just not cold, but a father who lavishes even good gifts on his children. We go to a gift-giving, generous God. You know, I love the story that's told of Susanna Spurgeon, the wife of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. Susanna was often sick in her later years, and she couldn't go to actually hear her husband preach. One day, actually, when she was ill, she joked that what she would love to have is an opal ring, and also a bullfinch, you know, a type of bird. And her husband looked at her and just said, where did that come from? You know, it's such a strange request. And they joked actually about it for a few days, but it was just kind of like, you know, the little desire of her heart. He says, I have no way to get such a things for you. You know, he couldn't go on eBay or whatever and order a bird, you know. What was he to do? Now, what was really interesting about this was that a few days later, Spurgeon Susanna wrote about how Spurgeon came bounding into the house with a big smile on his face and a tiny little box. And he opened it up for his wife to see. And there in the little box was a beautiful opal ring. And apparently, as the story goes, an old lady who had seen Mr. Spurgeon once when she was sick felt compelled to want to give the great preacher a gift and sent it actually through one of his uh, secretaries at the church, basically. 
and it turned out to be this tiny opal ring. Mrs. Spurgeon was so stunned by this, about how God had known the desires of her heart and supplied this, that she wrote this, how we talked of the Lord's tender love for his stricken or sick child and of his condescension in stooping to supply an unnecessary gratification to his dear servant's sick one. I must leave my readers to imagine, but I can remember feeling that the Lord was very near to us. Now, it didn't stop there, actually. It was really interesting, because a little later, she actually had to relocate to Brighton as she battled another sickness that she said would either end in her health or would end in her death. It was very serious. And unexpectedly, during this time, Spurgeon came home with, what do you know, a bullfinch, that specific bird, in a cage. And apparently, Spurgeon had gone to see a man who was sick and near to death, and the wife had a bullfinch in a cage. And she said to him that the songs of her little birdie named Bully, you know, were too much for the sick man. So she told Mr. Spurgeon, please take this bird with the cage to your wife. I know that Susanna, Mrs. Spurgeon, will be far more amused by this bird than my husband, who is going to be irritated to death by this bird right now. So please give it to her to keep her company while you're out preaching and so that she won't be lonely. And then Mr. Spurgeon, in shock, told her, about Susanna's desire for a bullfinch. And the woman was flabbergasted by that. And right there and then they both stopped and they gave praise to God for doing something, showing care to his little child Susanna, even though she had said nothing to anyone else about her desire for this particular type of bird. Mrs. Spurgeon wrote this uh, about, uh, about what her husband said to her. I think you are one of your heavenly father's spoiled children, dear. And he gives you just whatever you ask for. Mrs. Spurgeon said, Does anyone doubt that the bird was a direct love gift from, a, from the father? See, you see the father's infinite tenderness and his generosity towards his children in times of their greatest need. There is nothing too small, no need too small in our lives that our father does not notice. He sees what we need and he gives it to us, but oh, he does far more than that. He showers on us far more than we could ever think or imagine because he loves us as a father. We are sinful. We know how to be generous to our kids and God is infinitely way better than us. Will he not give us the things that we need for this life and far more? Put this number four in your outline, okay? God's love lavishes on us generous gifts that we don't deserve. Your friends, as we wrap this up, let me ask you, do you believe this? Now, are you a child of God today? And are you not worried about not having certain things? So do you know what worry is? Worry is really just a feeling that you need something, and if you don't get it, things are going to go really bad for you. And whether it's a dating relationship or somebody that you're hoping to marry and drives you up the wall because your head over heels for them, or uh, you're building a business and you're just wanting it to succeed, or you're hoping to get a better paying job, or you're hoping to land a deal to get this house, you worry, 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 and you worry yourself basically to death. Think, I need this, I need this, I need this. And here's the point. Doesn't your father actually really know what you need? Could that need of yours actually be a want? And perhaps is it in line with your father's will or not? Do you believe that God is actually in a father to you who wants to do you the very best that he can possibly do. If only you will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. 
And if you don't get what you want, let's say that relationship doesn't turn out and that person marries someone else, can you believe that God helped you to dodge a bullet and that you will actually be far happier now following His will than you would be going down that road which is not meant for you? See, it's a real test of us to think whether or not we truly believe this. We can say that we do, but the test is in the life that we live. Even if you've made mistakes and done foolish things in your life, can you trust that even now God will continue to lead you down a path that is good for you as you repent to Him and turn back to Him? Can you trust Him by doing the three Ps right here in the ASK, ask, right? Can you ask, seek, knock, or can you pray, pursue, and persevere in all that you do and not give up and trust Him for the results? God is not a trickster. He's not out here to get you. He's not a capricious Greek God who wants to make fun of you in life. He's not a disinterested party that you need to yell at in order to get his attention. He'll grudgingly give you gifts. He is not an old, doddering, uh, elderly grandparent, for example, who can only smile at you, maybe has dementia, and gives you candy all the time, even though it's bad for you because he doesn't even realize that he's going to harm you by doing so. No, the Bible tells us God is an active father who is looking out for you as his child. You know, and if you're not a Christian here listening to this today, let me ask you, is your life actually currently out of control? You know what God is calling you to do right now is to give it over to Him. He loves you deeply, and He wants you to be His child. And He sent His very own child to die on the cross for your sins so that you could be one of the members of His own family. He could take you under His wing. And the way that you need to live life as He calls out to you now is to stop trying to play the parent. Things don't go very well when you put your children in charge of the house. And you say, you be the parent and I be the child. I follow you. Bad things happen when that happens. God is saying to you here, let me be your parent. Stop trying to play dad. Let me be your father. I am the one with resources. I am the one who loves you. I am the one who fashioned you in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and you are wonderfully made. I named you even though you did not know me. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice on the cross for our sins. He is the God who is for you and not against you. If you only would come to Him and He calls to you right now, would you not turn your life over to Him for the forgiveness of your sins and to start a new life with Him, a life in which you live with peace as God is in control? See, you understand that your own anxieties are caused by you and your own desire to play God and to exercise control. God says, would you give that up and give it to me? Friends, whether you're a brother or sister today or whether you're a non-Christian, the call for us is clear. The God who is in heaven is almighty and he calls us to ask, to seek, and to knock and to trust him that he is good and will only do good to those who call on his name. Can we believe him and can we trust him in this? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love for us. An unfailing love, God, that answers our deepest prayers, O God, and withholds harm from us and grants to us the things that we need for life. Father, you are an incredible God who lavishes on us great gifts that we don't even deserve. Whether it's a little bullfinch or a tiny opal ring or things that are given just to encourage you encourage us when we are most down or when we are sick with terminal illness, how close you draw to us, how much you give us, just this special little encouragement, oh God, just custom designed for us because you care. Father, help us to be a people who saturate everything in our lives with prayer. 
Help us to be a people of God who don't just pray, but who pursue and take action and don't sit idly by. Our prayer leads us, God, to action. And help us, Father, as we pray and as we act, not to give up, but to pursue knocking on doors that are impossible for us to open, waiting until you open them for us. Father, would you do this for us? Would you be our Father and remind us of your goodness? Help us not to worry as we trust in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.